This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Martin Luther King Jr., The Good Fight, The Vlog Brothers, Moyers and Company, The Majority Report, Activism from Best of the Left, and All In with Chris Hayes. And if you only learn one thing today, I hope it's that the national economy is more complicated than a freshman's economics theory textbook. Surprising, right? You are demanding that this city will respect the dignity of labor. So often we overlook the worth and the significance of those who are not in professional jobs, of those who are not in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. You are reminding not only Memphis But you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. Fair day's wage for fair day's work. Nothing to earn And there's nothing to eat I actually studied economics in college, and for a while I thought about doing a PhD. My intro economics class was taught by a guy named Martin Feldstein, who'd been Ronald Reagan's chief economics advisor. That got you hooked, huh? Uh, actually, what got me hooked was arguing with him. Anyway... He argued against raising the minimum wage, and he's done that for decades. He makes the classic argument that a higher minimum wage is a terrible idea because it inevitably reduces employment. It is literally the textbook example of how well-intentioned government policy can make everyone worse off. Right, and economists of all stripes have accepted this for a long time. I've got an editorial here from the famously right-wing New York Times from back in 1987 entitled, The Right Minimum Wage? Zero dollars. Yeah, that's what a lot of people used to think. But then things changed. They started changing in a big way in the early 90s. Well, before 1994 and and, um, even today, a lot of economists simply think that you have simple supply and demand model, right? This is Sylvia Allegretto. She's an economist at UC Berkeley's Institute for Research on Labor and Employment. And you hear this all the time in the popular press. You increase the price of something, the price of labor being the wage, and you're going to get less of it. Pre-Carden Kruger, that was definitely what most economists thought. So we should pause here to explain. Right, right, right. Uh, Those two names are pretty important. 
David Card and Alan Kruger were a pair of Princeton economists who in the early 90s were a little suspicious of the existing body of research on the minimum wage. So there had been plenty of studies in the past, presumably all bolstering the case that the minimum wage costs jobs. Um, what was the problem with those? Why would these guys think that they needed to be reexamined? Lurking variables. <laughs> Lurking variables. That sounds like an economics-themed horror movie. Lurking variables. An economist's worst nightmare. In statistics, especially in empirical economics, when you're trying to explain how thing X affects thing Y, a lurking variable is thing Z, something hiding in the shadows that you're not paying attention to at all, but which is actually the cause of what you're looking at. It's sort of like, imagine, you know, you're looking at someone and they're looking at you and they start screaming and you think, oh my God, I'm making them scream, but there's actually a killer behind you, a lurking variable holding a knife above your head and that's what's making them scream. You think it's you, but it's actually the killer. Sorry, what does this have to do with the minimum wage? Uh, it has everything to do with the minimum wage. Sylvia explains it perfectly. For instance, the population centers are, are moving, right, to warm weather states. They're not moving to these areas because the minimum wages are low, but they're moving for any other reasons. We don't have high minimum wages in the South. They mostly go with the lowest minimum wage that there is, the federal minimum wage, right? But their populations and their employment is growing because it's warm weather and people are moving there. But if you don't take good care to understand those trends and to account for those trends in your model, you could easily pick up this, you know, this spurious effect, right? That it looks like, wow, employment's growing where there are low minimum wages and it's declining where there are higher minimum wages. So in that example, weather is the lurking variable standing behind the minimum wage with a knife. To really understand the effect of the minimum wage, you need to eliminate the lurking variables. You have to control every variable but one. Make the minimum wage the only thing that could possibly affect your outcome, which is employment. Okay, so in, in a perfect world, I assume what Cardin Kruger would have liked to do would be to build two identical cities, populate them with identical people, with identical numbers of McDonald's and so forth, and then just give them two different minimum wages. And sit back and see what happens. Exactly. Uh, I assume they didn't do that. Though. That's right. Unfortunately, uh, that's a little beyond the scope of typical research grants. So what Cardin Kruger did is what social scientists often do. They looked for what's called a natural experiment, which is something where history and politics in the world contrive to create a real-world situation as close as possible to that ideal. And in 1992, they found a pretty good one. Yeah, so Cardin Kruger looked at uh, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, where New Jersey decided that they would increase their state minimum wage. So this is like a, a natural experiment in economics, which we can usually never do. So I want to pause here and make sure we've got our numbers right. The federal minimum wage in 1992 was $4.25 an hour. And that year, New Jersey decided to raise its state minimum wage to five oh five. So suddenly you're going to have these two states next to each other where one state, New Jersey, had a 19% higher minimum wage. Right. So it's a significant change. It went up by almost a fifth in New Jersey. It stayed the same in Pennsylvania. And the crucial thing is that New Jersey and Pennsylvania are right next to each other. They're looking at states with the same weather, similar economies, and they didn't even look at the whole states. They just looked at basically matched communities right on either side of the state border, as few variables as possible. With the difference being the fact that since they were in two different states, they would be subject to two different sets of state policies. And two different minimum wages. And they look at restaurants, and the reason you, they looked at restaurants is because restaurants are really intense users of minimum wage workers. 
So if you're going to be able to find an effect, you would probably see it in the restaurant industry. So Carden Kruger hired a professional phone surveyor who called all these restaurants all over the New Jersey Pennsylvania border area and asked them about their staffing, their hiring and firing, and they compiled a pretty extensive set of data. Here they had two adjacent areas with super similar economies. In the first time period, they had the same minimum wage. In the second time period, one of them had a higher minimum wage. If they had found a substantial change in employment in one state but not the other, it'd be reasonable to assume that the minimum wage was to blame because that's the only thing that changed. And at the end of it all, they tallied up the data to get a picture of what had happened. And uh, in line with the predictions of classical economics, I assume Pennsylvania remained a thriving free market paradise and New Jersey was transformed into a road warrior-esque dystopia where roving gangs of laid-off McDonald's fry cooks hunted each other for food. Exactly. See you next week, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. See you later. Thanks for joining us. All right. That was a good show. Yeah. You did a really good job on that. Seriously, though, what actually happened from an economist's perspective was kind of surprising. And so what they basically saw was that you didn't see the decline in employment in New Jersey compared to Pennsylvania um, due to the minimum wage increase. When you looked at these counties that were really close to each other across time and across space that reduced employment due to the minimum wage, it did not materialize. So there was no measurable difference at all? Actually, there was a measurable difference. New Jersey had a slight increase in employment. And remember, New Jersey is the state that raised its minimum wage. Really? Yeah. Uh, the, the big expected job losses totally failed to materialize. And this study was like a bomb going off. It sent shockwaves through the economics profession. For a lot of economists, this was a lot bigger than just an interesting new finding. They thought it was as if someone was denying the fundamental laws of economics. That, by the way, is Larry Michelle. He's the president of the Economic Policy Institute here in Washington. The Lord High President. Lord yes. High President. <laughs> uh, the Economic uh, Policy Institute is a think tank that does a lot of work on labor economics and the minimum wage. And it was a very angry debate within the economics profession that scarred a lot of the leading scholars in the field. And I think it was for a long time that no one was able to publish in refereed journals because of it. Each side would keep the other from uh, getting any article in the journal. Larry's been studying labor economics for decades, and he was watching very closely when Card and Kruger put out their study. Alan Kruger and David Card were definitely part of the club, the elite club. David Card later got the award that is only given out every other year for the best economist under age 40, called the John Bates Clark Award. And many people who got the John Bates Clark Award go on to win a Nobel Prize. So this was a real fissure. There was really harsh, vicious, very personal debate, and so much so that some of the people doing this work stopped making public appearances and with, withdrawing some. Twenty years later, the Cardin-Kruger paper remains the major thing to contend with in the study of the minimum wage. It's cited endlessly in the economics literature, and every subsequent study has had to contend with it in one way or another, supporting it or attacking it. And of course, people do have problems with that study. Sometimes it's the same sort of criticism that Card and Kruger had for the studies that came before them, that it's essentially too myopic, it doesn't consider enough variables, and that maybe there's just something unique about that point in time and space that threw off the result. Yeah, and, and some economists have taken that criticism to heart and aimed to address it, including a few colleagues of Sylvia's. Its shortcomings of that research is that it's one example. It's Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Can you extrapolate that to the rest of the country? And that's what the newest research has done. My co-author, Aaron Dubay and Michael Reich, actually 
did that same type of analysis and looked at all the minimum wage differences across, you know, between two states, and they looked within each county that, that were contiguous, that were adjacent, you know, but they had different minimum wages. So now you're really getting down to, wow, these are counties and they're, they're adjacent to each other. And so to be clear, the idea here was to do the same sort of thing that Cardin Kruger had done, looking at adjacent counties along the borders between states where one of them changes its minimum wage. But instead of just looking at one spot, like Cardin Kruger, or a few spots, they did this for everywhere they could find, all over the country. They looked at similar communities right next to each other for every single minimum wage increase over the last two decades. So they basically generalized the Cardin Kruger approach and that was really important because that had a lot more data, very robust analysis. And the result was the same. No drop in jobs. They seem started a lot of businesses. Crash Course, SciShow, DFTBA Records, VidCon, the ceaseless juggernaut that is 2D Glasses. And Hank, your companies employ dozens of people, none of whom work for the federally mandated minimum wage of $7.25 per hour. But Hank, let's imagine that your next project is a fast food restaurant, corn dogs and sodium. What impact would raising the federal minimum wage have on you and your employees? At first glance, it seems like a no-brainer. Any minimum wage is terrible, both for corn dogs and sodium and for its employees. The Econ 101 argument goes like this. The free market is going to set wages where they need to be. Like, if you want to pay $5 an hour for corn dogs and sodium employees, but no one takes the job for $5 an hour, you're going to have to pay more. You'll increase your wages until you can attract the kind of employees that you need to, you know, batter and fry and serve encased cast-off pig meat. And we know that economies tend to grow less when governments set and control prices, so higher minimum wages restrict economic growth. Plus, unemployment will go up, because if the minimum wage is $10 per hour, corn dogs and sodium can only afford to hire one person. But if there was an unrestricted wage market, then they could attract two people who would be willing to work for $5 an hour each. So in the end, setting a minimum wage is an attempt to alleviate poverty that actually increases it. However, Hank, surprisingly enough, it turns out that actual labor markets are a lot more complex than the models of labor markets created by college freshmen. This brings us to a famous study by two economists, David Card and Alan Kruger. So in 1992, the state of New Jersey raised its minimum wage 18.8%. Pennsylvania, right next door, did not raise its minimum wage. Card and Kruger had the bright idea to go to the border of New Jersey and Pennsylvania and do employment surveys on either side of it. And what they found is that restaurant employment in New Jersey actually increased when the minimum wage went up. Since then, a bunch of other studies have confirmed Card and Kruger's findings. While some have found that there actually are negative effects to employment when you raise the minimum wage, although it's surprisingly and consistently mild. Why? Well, a bunch of reasons. For one, the minimum wage is probably near where the market would set it. But also, low-wage workers tend to spend most of their pay 
pay raises, which leads to increased economic activity, which in turn leads to more jobs. And higher wages also mean less turnover, which leads to lower costs of training and hiring and firing. On the downside, higher wages are also associated with higher prices on goods and services that rely on low-wage labor, which means that your corn dogs, Hank, would probably be a little bit more expensive. But Hank, the larger question is whether raising the minimum wage actually reduces poverty. And on that front, there is growing consensus that at least in the medium run, it does. A number of big recent studies have shown that raising the minimum wage 10% reduces the number of people in poverty by about 2.5%. Even many opponents of the minimum wage acknowledge this, but it's important to note that, like, that won't always work. At some point, raising the minimum wage will lead to inflation and slower job creation. It's just not clear where that point is. But it's just as disingenuous to call the minimum wage a job killer as it is to say that the minimum wage is going to fix economic inequality. In short, Hank, in economics, there's no such thing as a free lunch, but when it comes to reducing poverty without affecting employment, higher minimum wages seem at least to be the cheapest lunch available. But ultimately, Hank, now that I'm, I guess, an employer, I'm more persuaded by the personal argument. We found that paying a living wage, which we would do even if we opened corn dogs and sodium, leads to happier, more productive employees. Now, I know that's hard to quantify, but it's also what's allowed VidCon and DFTBA records to retain employees for years and years and grow sustainably. Now, Hank, obviously I am not an economist, although I did win a bronze medal in economics at the Alabama State Academic Decathlon Tournament in 1993. But our strategy has worked out pretty well for us so far, and it's also working at much larger companies like Costco. Hank, the United States is a rich country, and I think there's a growing body of evidence that the U.S. doesn't benefit from having poor workers. Of course, raising the minimum wage isn't going to fix that problem, but I hope at least we can begin to have a nuanced conversation about the problem. Hank, I'll see you on Friday. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Alright Ben, before we continue the show, we've got a caller on the line. This isn't a live show. We, we don't take calls. Palm Beach, Florida. Welcome to The Good Fight. Hello, caller. How are you today? Good, sir. Thanks very much. Appreciate your asking. I understand you have a question? Let me, let me ask you, uh, if, 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 if $7.15 is not enough, would $10 an hour be okay with you? Well, I, I think that's about what the current proposal in Congress is. It's ten ten. Right, ten ten an hour. Okay, well then, wh why not make it 15 uh, isn't that what they just raised it to in SeaTac in Washington? Yeah, and Robert Rice is arguing for $15 an hour. I, th I think that's, you know, potentially reasonable. Uh, what about 20 Um, uh, hmm. Oh, wait, so there's a limit to it now. Wait, uh, <laughs> well... Well... You are, you are willing to say that we might have too big an increase. Okay, actually, I'm glad you're bringing this up, because, of course, no one is claiming that the minimum wage can just go up and up to some crazily high number. The case here is that modest, periodic increases don't seem to hurt anything. 
And especially if those increases are just restoring some of the purchasing power that the minimum wage already had decades ago, this is really important for people in poverty. The minimum wage has nothing to do with poverty. The government is the reason for poverty. The welfare state is the okay, reason. Okay, I'm going to turn poverty. this guy down a bit. He sounds kind of familiar. Yeah. But he did bring up a good point, which is that the minimum wage is inherently an arbitrary number. And no one quite agrees on where it should be. But what we do know is that adjusted for inflation, the minimum wage has gone way down. In fact, at its highest in the mid-60s, it was worth $10.65. In today's dollars. Right. So here's the thing. The minimum wage has gone down. And at the same time, worker productivity has shot up. It's more than doubled since the 60s. And the added value that they're bringing to their employers has totally failed to show up in wages. So workers are paid less, they're producing more, and it's all basically going into corporate profits and executive pay. Uh, this isn't just about the minimum wage. Pretty much everyone's wages in the middle and the bottom of the labor market have not kept up with productivity, even remotely. And that leads us to this argument by Larry Michel that seems kind of counterintuitive at first. It's the idea that focusing on the number of jobs is actually a sideshow. Now, I have always thought that this issue of judging the minimum wage by whether there's some job loss, in fact, is a, is a bit of a distraction. It's the right wing that wants to focus on the jobs impact, and it should be considered in a much broader context. You know, it occurs to me that this is not the kind of thing that a pro-minimum wage politician would be likely to say. You know, I can just imagine the attack ad. Larry Michelle says job losses are a distraction. Job loss is a, is a bit of a distraction. Paid for by Americans for Prosperity and stuff. Well, first of all, he's not running for anything. But secondly, hear him out. What's wrong about that in many ways is the notion that somehow people who might lose out are totally excluded from jobs forever. In fact, that's not the way it would ever work because low-wage workers, unfortunately, live in a world where they go from job to job frequently. There's a lot of turnover. So what would probably happen if, in fact, there was less jobs available is that people would spend a little bit more time unemployed during the course of the year, but whenever they were working, they would earn a lot more wages and they would earn more in an annual basis. Right now we're talking about taking the minimum wage from seven twenty five to ten ten an hour. If it took you an extra week or two to find a job, you're gonna very quickly make that week or two that you didn't find the job up when you're gonna be making over ten dollars an hour versus seven twenty five. So it's like if you asked a minimum wage worker whether they'd be okay with being unemployed for a month and then earning 30% more for the rest of the year, they'd probably be cool with that. Yeah, that's the idea. Uh, here's Larry again. If, in fact, there is a small job loss, which I don't really believe there is, it still means that when you raise the minimum wage by 15 30%, that the total amount of wages earned by low-wage workers goes up a ton. And so even, for instance, there's very controversial study by the Congressional Budget Office recently that said something like 500,000 people could lose their job from a raise in the minimum wage, but that I think 25 million people would benefit. Well, if you take the benefits to 25 million and take the 500,000 loss, on net, that means there's a ton of wages going up in, for low-wage workers in their communities. Here's a way to think about the labor market. Imagine it's a huge game of musical chairs with hundreds of people playing, and when you're sitting down, you've got a job and you're making money. So even if raising the minimum wage removes a chair or two from the game, and a lot of economists don't think it does, but even if it does, everybody playing the game still benefits. Because whenever you're in one of those seats, your paycheck is so much bigger. 
So even if you're someone who supposedly loses out in the short run, pretty soon, raising the minimum wage helped you too. Okay, so I get what Larry's saying, that slightly fewer low-wage jobs in the economy plus higher wages overall could still leave nearly everyone better off. And I get that some of the studies don't find any job loss when the minimum wage rises. But I still don't totally get why. I mean, why raising the minimum wage wouldn't reduce employment? Like, in principle, why wouldn't it? If you raise the price of bananas, people will make do with fewer bananas. That's the way of the world. You raise the price of hiring workers, employers hire fewer workers. So you'd think so. That's what the really basic theory would say. And then we have all this data that suggests that that's not the case. It comes down to the idea that people aren't bananas. They're crazy, but they're not bananas. Exactly. And this plays out in several ways. For one thing, bananas, in your classic supply and demand situation, have tons of buyers and sellers. So if one particular banana buyer tries to drive down the price... I will not pay more than five cents per banana. Then people selling bananas can just sell to someone else. And I wind up with no bananas. That's right. But the thing is, if McDonald's is buying low-wage labor rather than bananas, often it actually has the power in the market to put the wage as low as it wants because it's not competing with lots of other buyers who are willing to pay more. If people are desperate for jobs and only a few big companies are hiring, then those companies can pay people much less than what they'd be worth in a normal labor market, much less than they're worth to the company. And the minimum wage is basically correcting for that market failure. It's setting wages closer to what they'd be if wages matched productivity. These large firms, and it's mostly large firms, that hire minimum wage workers are actually price setters. One of the reasons we don't find the negative employment effects is because we're in a much more complicated, complex labor market when we're talking about the low-wage labor market. And so we don't think it's as simplistic as um, supply and demand. We think it's more monopsony. Monopsony. I know this one. Uh, a monopsony is a market with one buyer and many sellers. Exactly. As opposed to a monopoly, which is one seller and many buyers. And McDonald's is the one buyer. They're buying labor. Right. So in a monopsony-ish type situation, a decent minimum wage is basically correcting for a failure in the market. It's pushing up wages to where the market would put them if it were working right. You know, it, it all comes down to who has power in the labor market. The, the fact is that uh, an economic transaction is not always a transaction between equals. And that is something that really shapes the outcomes. Ray Marshall, the former Secretary of Labor uh, under Jimmy Carter, who is, uh, remains one of my few heroes in the economics profession, said the invisible hand is all thumbs when it comes to the labor market. You know, there were, there were many people like Ray Marshall and, and me who always thought that the minimum wage was really about establishing some leverage for low-wage workers that they otherwise wouldn't get and that it was on balance a very, very good policy. So I get that, but it still strikes me that, that this policy is sort of reducing my company's competitive edge if I have to pay more for labor. Larry talked about this. Because it's intuitive that for any employer who says, if I have to pay my workers more, I'm not going to be able to have as many, is they're not also thinking that everybody that they compete against is also going to be paying more and therefore their prices might rise so much. So, you know, Pizza Hut's not going to lose its sales to Domino's, etc. So everyone pays a little more, and none of the businesses are at a disadvantage relative to each other. Now, they might have to increase prices by a few cents or have slightly lower profits. Maybe the CEO has to take a tiny pay cut. But the thing is, for most of these businesses, labor isn't the main thing driving prices. So you raise the minimum wage for people at McDonald's, the price of a Big Mac goes up a nickel. Not a big deal. And they don't lose market share because everyone else's price goes up a nickel. And then you've got all these people with higher wages. Uh, it'll also benefit the communities that these folks live in because they're going to buy stuff in their community. People buying more stuff means more demand. So businesses actually expand and hire more people. 
That's one of the theories for why higher minimum wages can actually create jobs. Because minimum wage workers, when they get a raise, they spend the money. Whereas when McDonald's makes a little bit more profit, it tends to stash it in whatever McDonald's corporate bank account yeah. might be. You know, uh, another way that workers aren't bananas, if I'm a banana, I don't care what my price is. Whereas if I'm a worker and I get paid more, I might do better work and try to keep my job. Right. That's another part of the theory. When workers are paid more, they tend to stay in their jobs longer. They tend to do better work. Yeah, this is why a lot of employers in general pay their employees more than the absolute minimum required, because it results in better work. So those are the core reasons why economists think that in the real world, when you raise the minimum wage, you don't see a loss in jobs. First of all, that the low-wage labor market is more like a monopsony with a few powerful buyers, and so people are being paid below their productivity, and the minimum wage just gets them closer to what they would be paid if the labor market worked right. Secondly, that when there's a higher minimum wage, workers have more money, so they buy more stuff, so it stimulates the economy and creates more jobs. And thirdly, that when the minimum wage goes up, when people's pay goes up, they actually work harder and they reduce their turnover and they generate more value for their employers. And that makes their employers less interested in letting them go, even though they cost more, because they're getting more for their money. If you wonder why so many Americans doing essential but menial work at low wages never seem to get a break, here's an answer for you. That's how it's intended to be. Not by nature, or the market, or from any lack of character or will on the part of workers. No, the fact is, our system is organized against them. The very thing workers most want and need, a fair wage, is the very thing the controlling interests don't want them to have. And by controlling interest, I mean the owners of capital who were emboldened even further this week by the Supreme Court's McCutcheon decision, giving moneyed interest more opportunity to rig the political system against everyday Americans. Case in point, you've heard about the wave of protest against fast food chains like McDonald's and Wendy's where employees are forced to live on next to nothing. Workers in regular sit-down restaurants are also penalized. Because in the 1990s, the National Restaurant Association, often known as the Other NRA, passed around enough campaign contributions to, shall we say, persuade Congress to set the federal minimum wage for waiters, busboys, and bartenders at only $2.13 an hour. $2.13 an hour. The NRA claims that tips are additional income that make up the difference. But tips are random and often meager and restaurant workers struggling to earn a living are twice as likely to be on public assistance. In other words, the people who run the system expect taxpayers to subsidize profits with welfare for their poorly paid employees. Which could explain why this man is smiling. He's getting rich, reinforcing the system's grip, making sure those working people don't get a break. Rick Berman's his name. Officially, he's a lawyer and lobbyist with his own public relations company. But his real job is as a professional bully who makes a ton of money beating up on vulnerable people. This master of smoke and mirrors figured out some years ago that to do the dirty work of corporate America, you need to create front groups with highfalutin names like Center for Consumer Freedom 
and the Employment Policies Institute. These sham outfits funded by deep pockets provide cover for industries and trade groups that want to bust organized labor and kill off health and safety regulations that protect workers and consumers. And because of our tax laws, written by the owners of capital and their rented legislators, Rick Berman gets to hide where the cash for that black magic is coming from. Over the years, however, some of his clients have been outed. Sources say they've included Philip Morris, Coca-Cola, Monsanto, the Merritt Corporation, and Tyson Foods, as well as restaurants willing to fork over a pile to a hitman like Berman while paying their employees as little as possible. Saruj Rahman is one of Rick Berman's primary targets. She's co-founder and co-director of Rock United. That's the restaurant opportunity centers whose 13,000 members across the country are fighting for better wages and working conditions. Because they've been making headway, they've got powerful enemies. Berman and his clients have gone nuclear, running full-page attack ads against raising the minimum wage, funding academic studies built on faulty premises, and creating a website called rockexposed.com that constantly vilifies the workers' cause. Sarojaya Rahman is with me now. She's also director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of this book, Behind the Kitchen Door. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Have you been surprised by the intensity of the attacks upon your workers? You know, the truth is that Richard Berman's been following us around for the last decade, trying to shut us down on behalf of the National Restaurant Association. What has happened over the last year is that they've definitely heated up the pressure, trying to kill our message whatever way they can. And his operation, his MO, is to do it by killing the messenger rather than the message, because the truth is it's very hard to argue with a message of, Nobody should be earning $2.13 an hour. That's as fundamental as it is. But he has personalized it, as you say, against you attacking your credibility and your motives. Why are you doing this? I mean, when you graduated from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard and Yale Law School, you could have had your choice of <laughs> positions in elite institutions. Why did you commit to this work? My parents are immigrants. They definitely struggled in this country, and I've seen too many families of my friends and neighbors struggle. And uh, I just knew that I couldn't live in a world where millions of people are hungry and don't feel like they get respect on the job for jobs that are hard, that really you know, require professional skills, like the restaurant industry. Well, your opponents have been taking out ads, as you know, on Fox News, full-page ads in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Is their campaign blunting your message? Not at all. The harder they try to call us names, the more I think it's realized that we're saying something that's getting on their nerves, something that they don't want to be heard. And that something is that they as an industry have gotten away now with, for decades saying that they shouldn't have to pay their own workers' wages. In fact, we, the customer, should pay their workers' wages for them. Because when you've lobbied for a wage as low as $2.13 an hour, these workers actually aren't receiving wages at all. They're living completely off their tips, which means literally we as customers are paying their wages, not the employer. And the Restaurant Association ultimately does not want people to know that they've gotten away with this immense boondoggle. Do they have a point when they say that an increase in the minimum wage will mean a cut in service and higher costs? 
Well, these are their two primary arguments. One, that it will kill jobs. Two, that it will make the cost of food go up. So on that first one, killing jobs, there are actually seven states in the United States that have the same wage for tipped and non-tipped workers. They range from somewhere around 8 and 9.50 an hour. You can go to California, Oregon, Washington, Alaska, Montana, Nevada, Minnesota. All seven states have faster industry growth rates than the restaurant industry nationally. And in fact, we recently did a regression, looked at the states with the higher minimum wages for tipped workers. We found that they have higher sales per capita in the restaurant industry. So we would argue that evidence shows that you could actually do better as an industry, faster industry growth, more jobs, if you treat your workers better. On that second argument, that the cost of food will go up, we used USDA methodology and we applied the current bill that's moving through Congress to every worker along the food chain, from farm workers to meat and poultry processing workers to restaurant workers. And we assume that every employer along the food chain would pass on 100% of the cost of the wage increase to their purchaser. The title of the report is a dime a day because it would cost the average American household at most 10 cents more for all food bought outside the home. That's groceries and restaurants alike. So we're talking pennies more on your hamburger when you eat out for 30 million workers to come out of poverty. What do you say to the small business owner who says, I run a very small place. We, our, our waiters depend upon the tips at the, at the counter. We just can't afford it. We'd go out of business if you require us to raise their wages? I would say a couple of things. First of all, our industry has the highest rates of employee turnover of any industry in the United States. I would say I can point you to plenty of small businesses around the country that actually pay their workers a livable wage and have managed to cut their turnover in half, in some cases, completely out because they treat their workers well. I would also say that nobody's expecting you to change your wages overnight. We're talking about policies that would phase in a minimum wage increase, a minimum wage increase for both your servers and the back of the house. But the, the last and most important thing I would say is this. No customer in America believes when they leave a tip that they are leaving a wage for a worker. Nobody believes that they're paying a wage. People think they're paying a tip on top of a wage. We don't think about this in any other context except restaurants. We believe somehow that because they're getting tips, they shouldn't get a wage. It's not true in any other context, and that is because of the power of this industry. Somebody tell me if there's no worse than slavery. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Sam, how do you understand the CBO analysis of the minimum wage increase to 1010? Also, stupid question, why are 500,000 jobs lost and 900,000 raised out of poverty not 
mutually exclusive? That's a great question. It was one of the first questions I had, too. Uh, let's get into that uh, CBO uh, report. Um, there's a couple of things you have to understand about it. And, well, let's first cover the, sort of the, the top lines of this. The CBO estimates that the proposal of raising the minimum wage from seven and a quarter to ten ten an hour would raise wages for sixteen million workers making under ten ten now and then millions more making over ten ten because there's a, uh, a some type of ripple effect it would increase family income by two billion dollars overall and seventeen billion for people earning less than three times the poverty line about seventy two thousand for a family four it would lift like you say umar's nine hundred thousand people out of uh, poverty and according to the cbo it would reduce employment by five hundred thousand people just to put that in perspective for every person or every job that is supposedly lost more than uh, something like 32 or 33 people will see rises in income. Now, this is if, we, if you take the CBO, just the headlines at face value. Um, it would create about $17 billion more for low and moderate income people a year in extra income. Um in terms of the question is how is it that it raises 900,000 out of poverty but 500,000 jobs are lost this means that it's less about 500,000 people being fired and more about people either leaving the the workforce and those jobs not being replaced or those people being able to find other jobs eventually they would be out of work for an extended period of time basically um, it would essentially hurt job growth by five hundred thousand jobs that is if you take it um, at face value you should know that in terms of the job loss the preponderance of economists and work on this don't agree with that that estimate. You should also know that there was a lot of elasticity to that estimate. In other words, they basically said, well, it could lead to very minimal job loss or up to a million people job loss, or jobs, I should say, lost. So we just chose 500,000. They didn't do any of their own research for this, and so they basically just did the spectrum of estimates and cho chose the one in the middle. Um, it's higher than what is broadly considered uh, economic consensus, and they also underestimate, the, uh, uh, according to consensus, the number of people who would be lifted out of, of, of poverty. But with that said, even if you just live by the sword, die by the sword, take the CBO analysis as is, it is still a huge boon for people.
in general. And ultimately, those people will find jobs and they will be much better jobs. And you would also have to believe that, and I haven't seen any studies about this, maybe they're out there, but I haven't seen any studies, that if it were the case that it would cost 500,000 jobs, how many jobs have we supposedly gained from the fact that 30 years ago we were at 1010 in today's dollars, more, 15 bucks in terms of productivity. Supposedly we had huge uh, jobs gains because we had artificially depressed that minimum wage, at least relative to where it was 30 years ago. Living isn't easy, I'm broke but I'm still breathing I won't become a victim of the media Always telling me to consume, 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 consume It's only you can save this economy You lose, you lose, you lose, you lose Your dollar bills is a worth of your dignity Hate that I love it, your money's all that you made of The zeros made in our pictures of someone making me better I wonder whether they're fighting and lying We lying, I'm buying what's exciting enough To keep us beating apart till we die Knowing that I was going to talk to you, I did ask a few friends and neighbors in New York City. I said, do you assume when you leave that tip that, that the workers are going to get it? And they yeah. said, well, yes, we do. Most people do. <laughs> Most people believe that when they leave a tip, it goes entirely to that worker that they're tipping. There's so many things that happen. First of all, that worker has to share the tip with probably 20 or 30 other people in the restaurant. Uh, Often, management illegally takes a portion of the tips. Illegally. Illegally. Uh, the tips are meant to make up the difference between that lower minimum wage of $2.13 and the overall minimum wage of $7.25. But the U.S. Department of Labor reports an 80% violation rate with regard to employers actually making sure that tips make up that difference. And what results? 70% of tipped workers in America are women, and they work at the IHOP and the Applebee's and the Olive Garden. Their median wage, including tips, is under $9 an hour. They suffer from three times the poverty rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce, and they use food stamps at double the rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce. So we're talking about poverty wage workers, including their tips. <laughs> to a great extent, this is a woman's issue, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Millions of women, most women in America, start their work life as a young woman in high school or college or graduate school working in restaurants. They, many go on to something else. Millions stay in this industry. But w whether they stay or they go on, because these women are forced to live off their tips, because their wages are so low they go to taxes, and they're not getting their income from their employer but rather from the consumer, they're forced to put up with whatever the customer might do to them, however they may touch them or treat them or talk to them. And as a result, we have the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry in the United States. 7% of American women work in restaurants, but 37% of all sexual harassment claims to the EEOC come from the restaurant industry. So we are exposing young women to the world of work in this industry in which they can rely completely for their income off tips, in which they can be touched and treated any which way. It's a demeaning situation to be in when you earn $2.13 an hour as a woman and you are completely reliant off customers' largesse, off the mercy of the clientele for your income. 100% you're living off tips. I said in the introduction that 
this is essential work, and it is. It's not going to be outsourced That's to China right. or to Mexico or to India. That's correct? right. These are jobs that are growing. These are the jobs that are available now. These are the jobs that people being laid off from any other sector or anybody entering the workforce, a young person, an immigrant, people coming out of prison, these are the jobs that are available. Well, how are you recommending change? You, you, I hear that you're adopting a new strategy. Absolutely. We need to eliminate the system of a lower wage for tipped workers altogether. So there is a bill moving through Congress that would raise the overall minimum wage to $10.10 and get tipped workers to 70% of that, or $7. That's a good start because it allows these workers some base wage, $7. Is it, is it sufficient? It's not sufficient. $7, as we all know, is a poverty wage. And as long as the tipped worker's wage is $7, that's the true minimum wage in our country. So if there's an effort or a concern to raise the wage above $7, we've got to get tipped workers there too. So there is momentum now in states across the country, ballot measures and legislation, to actually get all workers to the same base wage. Now you have two ballot initiatives going, one in yes. the District of Columbia and, and one in Michigan. And what are they about? So in Michigan, we're demanding that the wage go up to at least $10.10 and that the wage for tipped workers also be $10.10. And the language we're using is that no employer should be able to pay less than the minimum wage. Even the diner. Even the diner. Because the toy store next door or the retail shop next door, they also have to pay $10.10. There's no reason that the diner shouldn't. In, in Washington, D.C., we're saying $12.50 for everybody, tipped and non-tipped. There's legislation moving in Florida and Pennsylvania also to eliminate the lower minimum wage for tipped workers. So the nation is moving towards eliminating the lower wage for tipped workers, not eliminating tips. And I want to be clear about that. What happens if we don't raise the minimum wage for these workers? Their lives are going to be uh, unending poverty, <laughs> unstable family incomes, um, constant reliance on public assistance. Our lives as customers, what does it mean for us as customers? It means being served by workers who are too poor or often too sick to take care of themselves and thus take care of us well. Um, it means exposing ourselves to health risks because when you live off of tips and you don't have paid sick days as most of these workers do not, if your income comes from tips, you're going to go to work to get those tips regardless of what condition you're in, right? You're going to go to work with H1N1, swine flu. Yeah. You're going to go to work. We had a, a member in Florida testify that she worked with uh, typhoid fever for three weeks. Um, there's a company I'm sure you've heard of called Darden, which is the world's largest full-service restaurant company. They own Olive Garden, Red Lobster, Capital Grill Steakhouse. In 2011, they announced a partnership with Michelle Obama saying that they were going to provide healthy food for kids at the Olive Garden. Well, at that same moment, a server was forced to work with hepatitis A in Fayetteville, North Carolina, Olive Garden. And with a wage as low as $2.13 an hour, she had to go to work to get those tips. Well, 3,000 people were exposed to hepatitis A as a result of that incident, incident, had to get tested by the local county health department, filed a consumer class action against the restaurant, and won. So we ask, how healthy can your food really be for your kids at the Olive Garden if they're going to be exposed to hepatitis A? Do these tip workers get benefits as a matter of practice? 
90% of restaurant workers in America do not have access to health care or paid sick days, which means, according to our research, two-thirds of restaurant workers report cooking, preparing, and serving our food when they're sick. The Center for Disease Control has said that 50 to 80% of all norovirus outbreaks in the United States can be traced back to sick restaurant workers. So what hope is there for these people oh, who have not <laughs> any money to contribute to political campaign. There's so much hope, Bill. There's so much hope. Uh, so I want to give you one example. A couple of years ago, this happened in Washington, D.C. The people fought for a local paid sick days ordinance, meaning that every worker in the District of Columbia would be guaranteed that if they were sick, they could take a day off. Now, the Restaurant Association has been fighting this. In fact, they've introduced legislation together with ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, declaring that citizens in those states should not have the right to pass paid sick days ordinances even if they vote for them. So they tried this, but in the District of Columbia, we did pass a local paid sick days ordinance at the last minute, behind closed door deal, they said tipped workers should be left out. Restaurant workers got together with allies, consumers, said enough is enough. We fought and we won. We overcame the power of the National Restaurant Association. We got paid sick days for work tipped workers in the District of Columbia. What have you learned about how our system works? I've learned again and again and again that definitely there are moneyed forces that have controlled our system but also that there's nothing that the people cannot achieve once they expose those forces and once they resist. That we can actually overcome even the most hardened, moneyed lobbyist in Washington, D.C. or in states around the country because ultimately, if we are a true democracy, we cannot cede, we cannot cede our democratic powers to those people. We cannot give, throw up our hands and say, well, money controls Washington, money controls politics, I'm going to sit back. We cannot cede that because then there's no point in living in a democracy, truly. We, Is there a point to living in a democracy? Absolutely, absolutely. We, have, we still have some power to say, we will not put up with this. There's, we still have some power to say, this is outrageous. It is outrageous that working people should have to put up with this kind of misery. It is outrageous that working people should have to pay each other's wages rather than these multi-million dollar restaurant chains paying their own workers' wages. In any other context, what is it called when an employer practically doesn't pay their workers, full-time workers? It's called slavery. And so how is it that a major industry has basically convinced America, convinced Congress, that they practically shouldn't have to pay their workers at all? It's purely money and power and their control over our legislators. So obviously Congress hasn't been listening to the populace, Republican or Democratic alike, and that's what we need to regain control over. How can my viewers find out more about what you're doing in your organization? They should go to livingofftips.com. And I want to invite uh, my viewers to write us at billmoyers.com and tell us their experiences as waiters and waitresses. Saru, thank you very much. Thank you. You know I need that minimum wage just to get through. Just to get through. You know I need that minimum wage just to get through. Just again, you know she needs it. Something fading in her life, you know it ain't easy. 
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, raise the minimum wage to 1010. If the federal minimum wage had kept pace with inflation, it would be at a hardly adequate $10.86. But instead, due to shameful inaction by Congress, an often silent bully pulpit in the West Wing, and a poverty-stricken working class too exhausted to organize, the federal minimum wage remains $7.25. No one can live on $7.25, but people try every day in this country. It's time we worked towards a living wage. And let's start with a 40% hike to 1010. Hawaii, Connecticut, and Maryland, perhaps foreseeing last week's GOP filibuster of the legislation out of the Senate, have elected not to wait for congressional action, passing and signing laws that raise their state's rates to 1010. Hawaii's new law even applies to tipped workers, practically a revolutionary act that is a substantial help to women and people of color who disproportionately rely on service industry jobs. Outright hostility directed at low-income workers from Republicans is preventing action out of Washington, where elected officials bank on our most impoverished people feeling stripped of the power to demand more. In a recent Rolling Stone article, Jesse Meyerson, writer and co-host of Disorderly Conduct, called for a movement among millennials to demand both higher wages and a job guarantee similar to Roosevelt's New Deal. Quote, a job guarantee that paid a living wage would anchor prices, drive up conditions for workers at megacorporations like Walmart and McDonald's, and target employment for the poor and long-term unemployed, people to whom conventional stimulus money rarely trickles all the way down. That notion was, predictably, met with scorn and cries of radical from the right wing. Of course, the same group also thinks a minimum wage of any kind is communist. Senator Michael Bennett, Democrat out of Colorado, expressed the frustration felt by most of us when we listen to pundits and legislators debate policy that affects our ability to pay rent and eat as a socialist, self-serving conspiracy. Quote, they don't even want us to have a proper debate on the bill, let alone pass it. What is so radical about what we're trying to do? Unquote. The answer? It's not. In fact, the White House is finally on board with the Raise the Minimum Wage campaign being spearheaded by the National Employment Law Project, or NELP. At RaiseTheMinimumWage.com, you can find the list of states with proposed legislation as well as the latest on the federal push. You can also share your story as a low-wage worker. The NELP is putting a human face on the fight. They have a great step-by-step story-building page to amplify the voices and experiences too often left out of the discussion, and they're directing it at Washington. You can also participate in the Twitter campaign being led by the White House. Use the 1010Means hashtag using the numerals for 10 and add your voice to grassroots activism ordinary citizens, and legislators like Representative Keith Ellison from Minnesota, whose feed posts stats like, 1010 means 1 million veterans will see a pay increase. Let's thank our soldiers for their service and raise the wage. And Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, who tweeted, 1010 means millions of Americans would see higher wages, particularly women who work full-time. Raise the wage. Add your voice. Demand action. We all do better when we all do better. Activism. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage On this May Day, two big stories about the minimum wage in America. 
In Seattle, a victory. Political and business leaders today announced they have reached a deal to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. It's the highest in the United States to be phased in over the next few years. Meanwhile, back in Washington, D.C., a vote on a national minimum wage hike to $10.10, though garnering a majority vote of 54 to 42, fell short of overcoming a Republican filibuster. So, what explains the difference, aside from the obvious politics that Seattle's a pretty liberal town and that the U.S. Senate can't get a single piece of legislation through without a supermajority, thanks to Republicans' routine abuse of the filibuster? But another part of the difference is that, in Seattle, there is sufficient pressure from the left. In November of last year, Kshama Sawant, a socialist, an avowed socialist, was elected to Seattle City Council. She backed efforts to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and she leads a grassroots group called 15 Now. A business coalition in Seattle countered, and while they agreed to the headline figure of $15 an hour, they wanted some key qualifiers, like a temporary training wage, a phase-in period for health care, commissions, tips, and bonuses to be counted in total wages. The deal announced by Seattle Mayor Ed Murray today was a compromise, and he had this to say about the achievement. Cities have often been the incubators of democracy. And Seattle, I think, will prove itself when this process is finished in council to once again be an incubator, incubator of democracy, to be a city that once again does great things by showing how we as a city can lead the conversation in the nation to address this growing problem in our society, the growing problem of income inequality. In Seattle, pressure from the left is not unlike the original movement that brought us the 40-hour work week, that started the May Days that we now, well, kind of celebrate, but don't really. In so many crucial areas of progress, demands that at first seemed unreasonable, we shouldn't have to work all the time every last second of every day, demands that even seem preposterous, become more reasonable over time. In Washington, though, this dynamic plays out largely in reverse. That is, the right demands the preposterous and stakes out the most extreme position and then attempts to drag the middle towards them. As Brian Boitler, the New Republic, points out in a piece about that minimum wage filibuster, Republicans don't want to deal on this issue because from where they stand, tolerating the existing minimum wage is a concession. Republicans don't often publicly admit that they would like to abolish the minimum wage, although Senator Lamar Alexander confessed it to Senator Bernie Sanders last year. Well, let me jump in. I don't believe in it. You do we not? We can debate. I do not. All right. So you do not believe in the concept of the minimum That's wage? That's correct. You would abolish the minimum wage? Correct. Today, Senator Tom Coburn said there should be no national minimum wage at all. We don't know what the minimum wage should be. How'd they pick 1010? Why not 22? Why not $100? I don't believe you ought to interfere in the market. If there's to be a minimum wage, my theory is, is if Oklahomans want a minimum wage, we ought to have it. I don't believe there ought to be a national minimum wage. That's my position. I'm the only member of the Republican Party that's still here that voted no on the last one. Now, under those conditions, you get what we got today, or yesterday, a filibuster against even allowing a debate and a vote on the minimum wage. The GOP is the party so often pushing out the edge of what's possible. They're the ones making preposterous demands that then somehow become integrated into the national conversation. And if there's one thing to learn from Seattle or to learn from the original May Day, it is that sometimes what starts as a preposterous demand becomes the center if you say it long enough and if you organize and if you fight to make it happen. And Seattle, the ones making those seemingly preposterous demands, are speaking from the left.
Hi, Jay. This is Sally from San Francisco. I'm calling to respond to the show you just did on the charter school movement. Listen, it all comes down to money. The bottom line is, because we don't sufficiently fund the education system, public schools do not have the resources to address the needs of all their students. Charters operate the way they do, and sometimes at a profit, because they can exclude the most costly students that public schools cannot. Currently, a special education student can cost a great deal to educate. In states like California, the explosion in medical conditions such as autism and ADHD that result in special education services means that every year more is being required of schools with less money. A cynical view of the charter movement is that it's being used to circumvent the IDEA and the Americans with Disabilities Act, which requires states to provide a free and public education to students with disabilities while simultaneously depleting resources for public education. This is exactly what Diane Rabbit seems to believe is the actual goal of those like the Waltons who fund the charter school movement, and she may be right. In part because of the unfunded mandate for increasing costs of special education, monies are further depleted for difficult to educate students in general education, whether, as was mentioned on the show, they have a vocabulary deficit or at entry or some other disadvantage such as being an English language learner. The fact is, current public education funding is simply inadequate. In my home state of California, a lawsuit, Robles Wong versus Schwarzenegger, is underway, designed to attach funding to educational standards. The lawsuit is based in the California constitutional right that all students be provided a free and public education sufficient to enable them to meet rigorous state standards, standards which, if unmet, can be caused to deny students a diploma. The lawsuit has been instigated by California superintendents, the state PTA, and 40 families from across the state. Lawsuits like this one have already changed funding in states such as New York, where per-pupil funding is at least doubled out of California. Another way to circumvent charters from depleting public education funding would be to attach the actual cost of educating high-need students to the students themselves. Before anyone gets bent out of shape thinking this sounds like vouchers, I would propose something distinctly different. Let's make this funding attachment actually equal to what it costs to educate all students with IEPs. No voucher proposal has ever provided funding sufficient to teach individual general education students, much less students whose education can cost two to ten times as much. We already have a system like this for higher education in the form of Pell Grants, which, in which funding follows students. If we modeled a similar system for special education students grades K-12, not only charters, but specialized public schools would form to address the needs of special education students. Why? Because we really provided the funding for students with special needs in a way that reflects actual costs, educators would buy the chance to teach them. A free and appropriate education for special needs students does not come cheap. It's timely passed laws that will equalize the playing field between charters and public schools educating these kids. Lawsuits like Robles Wong and, the, and a system that actually attaches funding for the complete cost of education to special education students themselves might go a long way towards shifting the balance back in favor of public schools. Best of all, it would take the wind out of the sails of those using charters to fund public education by making special education students a sought-after group rather than a burden to escape. Thanks so much. Love the show. Bye. Hi, again, this is Daniel from from Atlanta living in Houston. Uh, and I wanted to respond uh, quickly to the uh, respectability politics and then to the Donald Sterling uh, situation. So 
I know, I know you said, uh, if you're Cosby or O'Reilly or whoever, you want to make the lives of young black males better, and you choose, you, you should choose, you should choose your time not telling them to be responsible, uh, but, you know, telling white people not to be racist. Uh, and you said, you know, if you're telling them to be responsible, then you're, you're missing the point by 95%. I just feel you're missing the point by 100%. I, I feel like what should be done if you want to improve the lives of and I wouldn't say young black males, I would say young poor black males. If you wanna if you wanna improve their lives, I feel like you wanna make class decisions. So what I mean is you wanna look at things structurally, like what structurally uh is a problem. And so I feel like class decisions should be activism to structurally change things at the political level, uh, local, state or national. I feel like class decisions are fighting for higher wages or less racist policing. Or a better education system. I feel like that's actually what does something. I know about about nonprofits. I actually feel like nonprofits are the chosen horse of capitalism because nonprofits have been growing in size and number for the past thirty or whatever years, and the gap between the rich and poor has been growing in size and number. So it's like nonprofits. They they make people feel like they're making an impact, but in the aggregate, they're not. In fact, they're um. They're taking what the government should be doing, and and people can point to nonprofits and think things are actually happening. So that's that's all I have to say there. I feel like uh, the whole idea of learning learning the values of kind of the powerful, so you can make it uh, in the world. I feel like that comes from an education system that teaches you to be you know a citizen that will be quote unquote successful. And we don't have that, uh, particularly for people who are poor. The next thing I wanted to talk about is Donald Sterling. Bomani Jones, who's an ESPN, ESPN analyst, there's something online I feel like everyone should check out called In 10 Minutes, ESPN's Bomani Jones lays waste to the Sterling issue. So he said, he said, and they asked him, uh, if he was mad about the Donald Sterling issue, he said, he said, no, why? I mean, I feel the same way. He said that the type of racism we're talking about with Donald Sterling is the type of racism where white liberals and moderates can jump on the bandwagon and fight racism in a way that does virtually nothing to change structural racism that actually kills people. So he talked about the Chirac thing, the, uh, you know, the, the violence in Chicago, and he talked about the racist policies that really led to there being a shortage of resources and black people having to live uh, in a certain area, and, and that really that really leading to what's going on right now. I actually think there's an overreaction to events like this and their significance. But the racism that really matters is the structural racism that causes certain neighborhoods to be policed certain ways, sentences to be handed out certain ways, education to be the way it is. Uh, and as Bomani Jones says, that ruins lives. I feel like Donald Sterling's racism is substance almost a victimless crime. I want to cut in here for just a second to make a similar point, but in a different way. I want to share something I think I heard on uh, Radio Dispatch, but didn't clip for the show, but just wanted to let you know about, is they, they made the really interesting point that pundits who would absolutely give a pass and defend Paul Ryan to the hilt when he uses dog whistle racism, the exact same people will pounce like rabid dogs on someone like Donald Sterling just because the racism is overt. And so this helps them sort of gain their anti-racist cred while actually ignoring the racist issues that truly matter and make a difference in people's lives. So hear, hear on those comments. And people literally die, as Bumani Jones said, because of the racism and racist policies, uh, like a Chirac policy or prison policies or policies like that. So 
I feel like the NBA, which I could and would if I had more time, argue is a structurally racist association, can now pat itself on the back for banning Sterling for life. What good does this do for anyone? And please don't give me some symbolic answer. Symbols are dangerous because they make us feel something's good happening when often the opposite is true. See Obama and the black unemployment rate, drones, whistleblowers, Wall Street and deportations. All of these things are things in which he has, he has done things more extreme than Bush, who is the symbol of evil conservatism. So give me one concrete good that this whole Donald Sterling thing does. I feel like it's getting way too much attention. Once again, I feel like racism should be fought in a structural way and that's in racism and classism, that, that's the only time, the only way we can beat it. All the, I feel like all the talk and all the trying to change people's minds one person at a time, that's, that's deceptive. Once again, this, this is, this is Daniel, um, you know, big fan of the show and the back and forth. Alright, bye bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today, I really just have to tell you that I've been dealing with a very good problem recently. I mean, at least as far as problems go, this is a good one to have. I am completely overloaded with really great and interesting either voicemails or emails that have come in recently that I, I just don't have time to share on the show. I wish I did, um, but I don't. And that's why God made the bonus show. So uh, I just want to let you know that the, the next bonus show I'm going to put out is, is going to be full of amazing responses to everything from the prison industrial complex to teachers unions to gender as a construct to uh, drag queens and where they fit into the LGBT. TQ community and uh, more beyond that because frankly I mean the the pressure is just building with all this great content so I got to let off some steam and and put out a bonus show so uh, it's going to just be chock full of interesting conversation topics if you like the conversations that happen on the show you would love the bonus show and uh, and it, it occurred to me that the last bonus show I put out uh, was uh, it was a little bit of a conversation about respectability politics before we were even discussing respectability politics because when I moved, I, I one of the movers uh, working with me was a black guy, and uh, I, I think he might have been practicing some respectability politics, which I, I found interesting and sort of amusing, and uh, so I, I, I told that story on, on the bonus show, and you should definitely check that out. And uh, so, you know, if you're interested, that's all available to the members. Go to the membership tab at bestofleft.com, sign up. And I will send you all the details on how to access that content. And of course, you, you not only get uh, the most recent bonus show episodes, but like, you know, a couple dozen going back. And that is entirely how the show is supported. I mean, besides like shopping on Amazon if you want, but that's that's the way this show keeps going. So uh, thanks to everyone who is, uh, you know, interested in taking the time and spending a little bit of money to support this work. And that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Of course, those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations even, that is how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the 
conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And